0: The True Jihad, written by Maulana Wahiduddin Khan, narrated by Don L. Haynes. Table of Contents Preface The True Jihad, Peace in the Quran, Nonviolence in Islam, Tolerance, Its Significance Today, Conclusion A perusal of the Qur'an, followed by a study of Latter-day Muslim history, will reveal a blatant contradiction between the two, that of principle and practice. Where recent developments in some Muslim countries bespeak the culture of war, the Qur'an, on the contrary, is imbued with the spirit of tolerance. Its culture is not that of war, but of mercy. At the very beginning of the Qur'an, The first invocation reads, In the name of God, the Most Merciful, the Most Beneficent. Throughout the Quran, God's name is thus invoked no less than 113 times. Moreover, the Quran states that the prophets were sent to the world as a mercy to the people. The word jihad has nowhere been used in the Quran to mean war in the sense of launching an offensive. It is used rather to mean struggle. The action most consistently called for in the Quran is the exercise of patience. Yet today, the Muslim muhaddin under unfavorable conditions, have equated God is great with war is great. For them, the greatest reward is to be able to wield a Kalashnikov rifle. In the light of ongoing conflict, we must ask why so great a contradiction has arisen between the principles of Islam and the practices of Muslims. At least one root cause may be traced to historical exigency. Since time immemorial, military commanders have been accorded positions of great eminence in the annals of history. It is a universal phenomenon that the hero is idolized even in peace times and becomes a model for the people. It is this placing of heroism in the militaristic context which has been the greatest underlying factor in the undue stress laid on war in the latter phase of Islam's history. With the automatic accord in Muslim society of a place of honor and importance to the heroes of the battlefield, Analysts' subsequent compilations of Islamic history have tended to read like an uninterrupted series of wars and conquests. These early chronicles having set the example, subsequent writings on Islamic history have followed the same patterns of emphasis on militarism. The Prophet's biographies were called Maghazi, that is, the battles fought by the Prophet, Yet the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, in fact did battle only three times in his entire life, and the period of his involvement in these battles did not total more than one and a half days. He fought, let it be said, in self-defense, when hemmed in by aggressors, where he simply had no option. But historians, flying in the face of fact, have converted his whole life into one of confrontation and war. We must keep in mind that the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, was born at a time when an atmosphere of militancy prevailed in Arab society, there being, in their view, no other path to justice. But the Prophet always opted for avoidance of conflict. For instance, in the campaign of Azab, The Prophet advised his companions to dig a trench between them and the enemies, thus preventing a head-on clash. Another well-known instance of the Prophet's dislike for hostilities is the Hurrabiya Peace Treaty in which the Prophet accepted all the conditions of the enemy. In the case of the conquest of Mecca, he avoided a battle altogether by making a rapid entry into the city with 10,000 Muslims a number large enough to awe his enemies into submission. In this way, on all occasions, the Prophet endeavored to achieve his objectives by peaceful rather than by warlike means. It is therefore unconscionable that in later biographical writing, all the events of his life have been arranged under the headings of battles. How he managed to avert the cataclysms of war has not been dealt with in any of the works which purportly depict his life. Ibn Khaldun, the celebrated 14th century historian, was the first to lay down definite rules for the study and writing of history and sociology. He followed the revolutionary course of attempting to present history as a chronicle of events centering on the common man rather than on kings, their generals, and the battles they fought. But since war heroes were already entrenched as the idols of society, the caravan of writers and historians continued to follow the same well-known path as had been trodden prior to Ibn Khaldun. When people have come to regard war heroes as the greatest of men, it is but natural that it is the events of the battlefield which will be given the greatest prominence in works of history. All other events will either be relegated to the background or omitted altogether. In the past, when the sword was the only weapon of war, militancy did not lead to the mass scale loss of life and property such as modern warfare brings in its wake. In former times, fighting was confined to the battlefield, the only sufferers were those engaged in the battle. But today, the spear and the sword has been replaced by mega bombs and devastating long-range missiles so that killing and destruction take place on a horrendous scale it is the entire human settlement which has now become a global arena of war even the air we breathe and the water we drink are left polluted in war's aftermath hence people in the west find islam outdated and irrelevant precisely because of its militant interpretation. Demands for a reform in Islam are on the increase, as the old version of Islam cannot apparently keep pace with the modern world. But in reality, it is not reformation which is urgent, but revival. What is needed is to discard as superficial and erroneous the militant and political interpretation of Islam and to adopt the original old version of Islam based on peace, mercy, and the love of mankind. The so-called Muslim Mujahideen have been exhorting their co-religiousness to do battle all over the world, but the Quran says, And God calls to the home of peace. It is up to the right-thinking people everywhere to reject the militant version of Islam and to start seeing and accepting Islam as it is truly represented by the Quran. Wahiduddin Khan, The Islamic Center, New Delhi, January 4, 2002 The True Jihad Read, in the name of your Lord, the Quran. Surah 96 Ayat 1 The Quran exhorts believers to Strive for the cause of Allah as it behooves you to strive for it Surah 6 Ayat 78 The earnest struggle is expressed in Arabic by the word Jihad which is derived from the root word Jihad which means to strive, to struggle that is, to exert oneself to the utmost to achieve one's goal. Thus, the original meaning of jihad in Arabic is striving very hard. Since the early Muslims had to strive hard during wars with aggressors, these wars came, in an extended sense, to be called jihad. However, the actual word for such a war in Arabic is qatal, not, Jihad. War with an aggressor is a chance occurrence, taking place as warranted by particular situations. While jihad is a continuous action, which is at the core of the believer's life day in and day out, it is an ongoing process. The constant jihad means strict adherence to the will of God in all aspects of one's life and the prevention of any obstacle coming in the way of fulfilling God's will. For instance, the desires of the self, the urge to serve one's own interests, the compulsion of social traditions, the need for compromises, ego problems, greed for wealth, etc. All these things directly thwart righteous actions. Overcoming all such hurdles and preserving in obeying God's commands are the real Jihad. And the word Jihad has been used primarily in this sense. We quote here some traditions, as recorded in Musnad Ahmad, which define the role of the Mujahid. Number one, a Mujahid is one who struggles with himself for the sake of God. Two. A Mujahid is one who exerts himself for the cause of God. Three, A Mujahid is one who struggles with himself in submission to the will of God. The present world is a testing ground. The entire fabric of this world has been designed with a view to fulfilling the purposes of the divine trial of man. This being so, The human being is necessarily faced with all kinds of temptations, which are so many barriers to his measuring up to God's standards. For instance, when a matter of truth comes before him and he fails to acknowledge it for fear of losing his status. When he has someone's wealth or property in his possession and he hesitates about restoring it to the true owner. When he resents having to place curbs on himself in order to lead a life of modesty as desired by God. When he feels that suppressing his anger and vengefulness in order to be patient amounts to his own negation. When he fails to speak words of truth and stand up for justice for fear of losing his popularity. When he is loath to renounce comforts and convenience, etc. In order to be of a principled character instead of a selfish character. On all such occasions, man has to curb his desires. It becomes essential for him to sacrifice his feelings. At times, he may feel that he has to kill his ego completely. In spite of having to surmount all such hurdles, the individual should be determined to stick to the truth in the real and primary sense of jihad. Those who engage in this jihad will be deserving of paradise in the hereafter. Jihad, essentially, is a peaceful struggle. One form of this peaceful struggle is Dawah, the communication of the message of God. The Quran states, Do not yield to the unbelievers, but fight them strenuously with it. The Quran Sora 25 Ayat 52 No military activity is referred to in this verse of the Quran. We are not meant to engage in any physical combat with the non-believers. What this verse actually means is that we must engage ourselves in Dawa activities through the teachings of the Quran, that is, striving ourselves to the utmost on an ideological plane while sifting truth from falsehood. Even in the face of a military challenge from the enemy, all efforts will be made to counter aggression by peaceful methods. The path of peace can be abandoned only when it has become impossible to stick to it, and only when there is no other option to give a military response in self-defense. A tradition narrated by Aisha, the prophet's wife, provides a guiding principle. She said, Whenever the Prophet had to choose between two courses, he would always opt for the easier one. This means that whenever the Prophet had two options before him in any matter, he would always abandon the harder option in favor of the easier one, Bukhari. This tradition, Sunnah, of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, is relevant not only to everyday affairs, but also to such serious matters as by their very nature, relate to harder options. The study of the Prophet's life shows that he never initiated a military move himself. When his opponents wanted to embroil him in war, he would on all occasions apply some strategy of avoidance to avert war. He fought only when there was no other way left to him. According to the Sunnah of the Prophet, There is no aggressive or offensive war in Islam. Islam only allows a defensive war, and that, too, only when there is no other option. The truth is that in life, we have to face the problem of choosing between two courses, between the confrontational and the non-confrontational, between the peaceful and the violent. The Study of the Prophet's Life tells us that the Prophet, in all matters, abandoned the violent or confrontational course in favor of the peaceful or non-confrontational course. The whole life of the Prophet provides a successful, practical example of this principle. We give here some examples of this nature. 1. After being appointed as Prophet, the first question before him was which of the two above-mentioned courses he should follow. As we know, the Prophet's mission was to bring polytheism, shirk, to an end, and establish monotheism in its place. The Kaaba in Mecca had already been established as a center of monotheism, but at the time of the Prophet, 360 idols were already installed within its walls. In view of this situation, the first verses to be revealed in the Quran should have been to this effect. Purify the Kaaba of all idols, and then, after making it a center of tawhid or oneness of Allah, work for your mission. But beginning his mission with this task would have amounted to waging war, for it was the Quraish who were the guardians of the Kaaba as well as the leaders of Arabia. The Prophet therefore totally avoided the physical purification of the Kaaba, and limited himself to the theoretical communication of the message of monotheism. It was the first prophetic example of adopting a peaceful and non-confrontational method instead of a violent or confrontational method. 2. Adhering strictly to this peaceful principle, The Prophet continued to work in Mecca for a period of 13 years. But even then, the Quraysh turned his dire enemies. Ultimately, the Quraysh leaders, in consultation amongst themselves, arrived at a consensus to kill the Prophet. Therefore, armed youths of their tribe surrounded his home one night to put their plan into action. This was an open challenge for the prophet and his companions to do battle with them. Instead, the prophet, guided by God, decided to avoid any military encounter. Therefore, in the stillness of the night, he quietly left his home in Mecca for Medina. This event is called the emigration, the Hijra, in the history of Islam. Emigration is a clear example of abandoning violent situations in favor of peaceful solutions. 3. The Battle of the Trench is another example of this Sunnah of the Prophet. On this occasion, a large number of people from different tribes had come to Medina with the intention of attacking it. It was clearly a military challenge. But the Prophet used strategy to avoid an encounter with the enemy. According to this plan, the Prophet worked hard day and night along with his companions to dig a long trench between him and his opponents. The trench served as a buffer. Therefore, when the army of the Quraysh arrived, they could not attack. So they camped there for some days. In the end, they gave up the idea of attacking as it was impossible to cross the ditch. They eventually left Medina. The digging of this trench provides an example of opting for a peaceful course instead of a violent course. 4. The Hudabiyah peace treaty also provides another example of this Sunnah of the Prophet. At that time, the Prophet and his companions had wanted to perform the minor pilgrimage, Umrah, by entering Mecca. But when they reached Hudabiyah, which was nine miles from Mecca, they were stopped by the Quraish leaders. They said that in no event would they allow them to enter Mecca. This again was a military challenge. If the Prophet wanted to advance as planned towards Mecca, an encounter was sure to take place. Therefore, the Prophet ended his journey at Hudabiyah and entered into a peace treaty, accepting unilaterally the conditions laid down by the enemy. He then came back to Medina without having performed the Umrah. This was a very clear prophetic example of adopting a peaceful method as opposed to a violent method. 5. The conquest of Mecca provides an equally telling example of this same Sunnah. At the time, the Prophet was accompanied by 10,000 devoted followers. They could certainly have fought a successful battle with the Quraysh. Yet, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, decided to demonstrate his power rather than use it. He did not come out with his 10,000-strong army to declare war against the Quraysh in order to conquer Mecca after a bloody encounter. He instead made preparations for a journey with the utmost secrecy and traveling with his companions, he quietly entered Mecca. This entry was so sudden that the Quraysh could not make any preparations for war and Mecca was conquered without any carnage. This incident provides a fine example of adopting a peaceful instead of a violent method. These examples show that not only in normal situations, but also in extreme emergencies, the Prophet adhered to the principle of peace rather than that of war. All his successes are practical examples of this sunnah of peace. 6. As mentioned above, the position of peace in Islam is sacrosanct, while war in Islam is allowed only in exceptional cases when it cannot be avoided. Granted that this is so, let us look at the state of affairs prevailing today. This modern age is totally different from the preceding centuries. In ancient times, violence was the norm, so that maintaining the peace was extremely difficult. But now, the situation has totally changed. Today, We have reached the ultimate stage where any kind of violence is undesirable or unacceptable. Indeed, a peaceful strategy is the only viable option. Furthermore, in our times, a peaceful course of action is backed up by ideological and practical arguments which invest it with all the greater power and sanctity. These modern support systems have a number of very positive aspects. For instance, the right to freedom of expression, the possibilities opened up by the communication systems of spreading one's message across the globe, etc. These modern changes have rendered possible a peaceful course of action, which has far greater popularity and is at the same time more effective. As mentioned above, the sunnah or way of the prophet, is that if it is possible to adopt a peaceful method, it should be put into practice during any Islamic struggle. A violent course of action should be shunned altogether. Now the present state of affairs is that as a result of the changes that have taken place in the present age, the peaceful method is not only viable at all times, but due to various supporting factors, has become the most effective course of action. It would therefore be no exaggeration to say that in present times, a violent struggle is not only a hard option, but is not in practice useful. Whereas nonviolence is not only an easier option, but is also highly effective and result-oriented. Now, a peaceful course of action is not just one of the possibilities, it is the only feasible and result-oriented option. This being so, it would be right to say that violence has been practically abandoned. This is what we call an abrogated command in the language of the Sharia Islamic law. Now, believers are, in reality, left with only one choice, and that is indeed the peaceful course of action. In recent times, One celebrated example of the success of such a course is to be found in the life of the Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi. Due to temporal changes, it became possible for Mahatma Gandhi to wage political battles successfully by adopting the principle of non-violence and engaging in peaceful activism in the full sense of these expressions. It is a known principle that the commands of the sharia change according to altered situations. This accepted principle of fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, demands that with the changing times, a new application of the sharia should be sought in order that sharia commands may be in consonance with the changing circumstances. This principle of Islamic jurisprudence relates not only to civic matters but also certainly to the waging of war. This principle demands the practical avoidance of a violent course of action. Only a peaceful course of action should be accorded the status of a Sharia command. The Jihad Movements of Modern Times It is true that in ancient times Violent solutions were adopted at certain stages due to the prevailing circumstances. Opponents had no other alternative. Now, with the changing of the times, there is no longer this compulsion. Therefore, launching out on a violent course of action is not only unnecessary, but also un-Islamic. In these modern times, non-violent conduct is the best option. According to the Islamic Sharia, peace is the rule in matters of jihad, while war is the least desirable option. In present times, groups of Muslims in many countries have launched movements of armed jihad in the name of Islam. But a movement cannot be a jihad just because its leaders describe it as such. An action can be termed a jihad only when it fulfills the conditions set by Islam. Any military action which is carried out without fulfilling these conditions will not be a jihad, but a facade, which will amount to spreading corruption across the world. Those who engage in such a jihad will not deserve any reward. They should expect only divine punishment. The special conditions of jihad have been dealt with in detail in the following chapter. Here. I would like to lay stress on one important aspect of it, that is, jihad, in the sense of kital, armed struggle, does not fall into the same category of individual acts of devotion as prayer and fasting. It is an activity which relates totally to the state. The true Islamic Jihad, as it relates to the individuals, is a positive and continuous process which is at work throughout the entire life of a believer. There are three major kinds of this process of Jihad. 1. Jihad-inafs To control one's negative and undesirable feelings within oneself and to persevere in the life of God's choice in all circumstances. 2. Dawah Jihad To communicate the message of God to all human beings and deal with all human beings with full compassion and well-wishing. This is a gigantic task. That is why it has been called the greatest jihad in the Quran. 3. Jihad with Antagonists to counter any challenge from the opponents of religion and to safeguard religion in all circumstances. This jihad basically has always been a peaceful process, and it is still so even today. In this respect, far from being an armed offensive, jihad is essentially a peaceful struggle. Peace in the Quran God calls to the home of peace, the Quran, Surah 10, Ayat 25. A three-day symposium held at the American University in Washington on February 1998, I made a speech on Islam and peace, a part of which is given below. It is no exaggeration to say that Islam and violence are contradictory to each other, The concept of Islamic violence is so obviously unfounded that prima facie it stands rejected. The fact that violence is not sustainable in the present world is sufficient indication that violence, as a principle, is quite alien to the scheme of things in Islam. Islam claims to be an eternal religion and, as such, can never afford to uphold any principle which cannot stand up to the test of time. Any attempt to bracket violence with Islam amounts, therefore, to casting doubt upon the very eternity of the Islamic religion. Islamic terrorism is a contradiction in terms much like pacifist terrorism. And the truth of the matter is that all the teachings of Islam are based directly or indirectly on the principle of peace. The teachings of Islam. The very word Islam from the Arabic sim connotes peace. According to a tradition of the Prophet, peace is Islam, Al Bukhari. This means that peace is one of the prerequisites of Islam. Similarly, a hadith states a Muslim is one from whose tongue and hands people are safe. One of the attributes of God described in the Quran is as salam which means peace and security. That is to say that God's being itself is a manifestation of peace. Indeed, God is peace, Abu Kari. In the Quran, divine guidance is likened to the paths of peace. Surah 5, Ayat 16 According to Islam, paradise is the ideal human abode and is thus called the home of peace. It is also said that the people of paradise will wish peace to one another, indicating that the social culture of the people of paradise will be based on peace. The Quran avers that reconciliation is best, Surah 4, Ayat 128, and judging by the consequences, The way of peace is far better than that of confrontation. By the law of nature, God has decreed that success will be met with only on a reconciliatory path and not on a confrontational or a violent course of action. Whenever the prophet had an option between two courses of action, he always chose the easier non-confrontational one, Bukhari. This means that violent activism should not be indulged in if peaceful activism is an option, for peace is the easier course as compared to violence. For instance, trying to change the status quo in the very first stage of a movement is a hard option, while launching one's activities in the available sphere without doing so is an easier option. Going to war in confrontational situations is a hard option while following a conciliatory course in dealing with one's rival is easier. Countering aggression with aggression is a hard option while countering aggression with patience and forbearance is an easier option. An agitational course of action is harder than employing quiet strategy. Adopting a radical method of reformation is harder than that of following a gradual method. Taking emotional, extreme steps without a thought for their consequences creates difficulties. While a well-considered method, keeping an eye on the consequences gives much better results. The policy of confrontation with a ruler is a harder option. While initiating one's action by sidestepping the ruler in the sphere of education and learning is an easier option. These instances show us the easier and harder options as demonstrated by the Hadith. The truth is that peace in Islam is the rule while war is the exception. This is borne out by all the teachings of Islam and the practical life of the Prophet of Islam. The example of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, received his first revelation in 610 in Mecca. God ordained that he carry out the mission of Tawhid, or oneness of God. The house of the Kaaba, which was built as the house of monotheism by the prophet Ibrahim, may peace be upon him, and his son Ishmael, later on became a center of polytheism with 360 idols in it. The first revelation might well have demanded the purification of the Kaaba, which would have given rise to a serious problem. But the first revelation made in the Quran was purify your vestments. Surah 74, ayat 4. This means to purify one's moral character. If, in the first stage, the prophet had been commanded to purify the Kaaba while Mecca was still under the domination of the idolaters, this would have surely precipitated clash and confrontation. Therefore, according to the command of the first revelation, the Prophet continued to perform his prayers peacefully in the Kaaba for a period of thirteen years, even though it housed several hundred idols. Similarly, the Prophet and his companions circumambulated the Kaaba on the occasion of Umrah al-Hurabiya in 629, while the Kaaba still housed 360 idols. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, proceeded thus in order to avoid war and confrontation with the idolaters, and so that the atmosphere of peace should be maintained. The entire life of the Prophet is a practical demonstration of this peace-loving policy. At the time of migration from Mecca, the idolaters were all set to wage war. But the Prophet avoided this by quietly leaving his homeland for Medina. The mission of Islam is based on monotheism, its goal being to make people realize the existence of the one and only God and to strive to bring about a revolution in their hearts and minds in order that they may love God as is His due. And the greatest concern of man should be to fear and worship His Creator. Surah 2 Ayat 165 such a Dawa mission cannot afford wars and violent confrontations. When a state of war and violence prevails, the normal atmosphere is vitiated and such circumstances as would foster intellectual movements and spiritual reformation cannot be effectively created. It cannot be denied that peaceful circumstances produce a propitious environment for Islam while violent circumstances inevitably result in antagonism towards Islam. War, a state action. In Islam, war is not the prerogative of the individual, but of an established government. Only an established government can declare war. In other words, individuals can prey on their own, they cannot wage wars of their own accord. Only when a war is declared by the ruling government can the public join in and support it, and not before that. Islam does not sanction individual actions on this issue. As a general principle, the Quran tells us that even where an external attack is feared, the common man should not act independently, but should take the matter to the ruler, Then, under his guidance, take proper countermeasures. Surah 4, Ayat 83 The Hadith also states that the ruler is a shield, fighting is done under him, and security is attained through him. This clearly shows that the decision to do battle and its planning are the task of an established government. The common man can play his role as need be under government orders, and not independently. This Islamic principle shows that there is no room for non-state warfare, which is what we generally call guerrilla war. A guerrilla war is fought by individual organizations, not by the state. As far as the state is concerned, If it wants to wage a defensive war against any country, it has first, in obedience to the Quran, to issue a proper declaration. Only then can it wage a lawful war. Surah 8, Ayat 58 In Islam, there is only declared war. Therefore, in accordance with this principle, no proxy war in Islam can be lawful. Most Islamic actions are governed by certain conditions. The waging of war is also thus subject to certain principles, one being that even when a defensive war has been declared by the state, it will be aimed only at the combatants. Targeting non-combatants will be unlawful. The Quran enjoins us not to do battle with those who are not at war. Such people have to be dealt with kindly and equitably, but you are free to do battle with those who are fighting against you. Sura 60, Ayats 8-9 If, for instance, a Muslim state is at war with a particular nation, and this war is in conformance with Islamic principles, it should not permit any destructive activities against non-combatants or civilians as was done on September 11, 2001 in New York and Washington. Similarly, in Islamic war, Muslims are not permitted to commit suicidal bombings in order to destroy the enemy. Strapping explosives onto oneself and hurling oneself upon civilian settlements of even those with whom one is at war for the purpose of destroying the enemy and in the process of killing oneself deliberately, is totally un-Islamic. This can in no way be termed shahada, martyrdom. According to Islam, we can become martyrs, but we cannot court a martyr's death deliberately. The Difference Between the Enemy and the Aggressor under the scheme of the divine trial of human beings man has been granted freedom by god due to this freedom enmities may develop between people sura 20 ayat 123 which sometimes lead them to war but islam makes a clear difference between enmity and war Believers do not have the right to wage wars against their enemies. What the believers have to do as regards their enemies is far from waging war. Their duty is to peacefully convey to them the message of Islam. The Quran gives a clear injunction on this subject. And good and evil deeds are not alike. Repel evil with good. And he who is your enemy will become your dearest friend. Surah 41 Ayat 33-34 That is to say, Islam believes in turning one's enemy into a friend through peaceful means instead of declaring him an enemy and then waging war against him. Islam does give permission to do battle. But such permission is given only in the case of an attack by opponents in spite of the policy of avoidance being followed by the Muslims, thus creating a situation where self-defense is required. The Quran has this to say, Permission to take up arms is hereby given to those who are attacked because they have been wronged. Surah 22, Ayat 38 At another place, the Quran gives a valid reason for fighting they were the first to attack you sura 9 ayah 13 this shows that according to the teachings of islam war is to be waged not against the enemy but against the aggressor if muslims hold someone to be their enemy that does not give them the right to attack him the one and only right given to them is to convey the peaceful message of islam Islam permits defensive fighting against violent aggression, but only when all efforts at avoidance and reconciliation have failed. The practical example of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, provides an uncontrovertible proof of the value of this policy. The Power of Peace According to a Hadith, God grants to gentleness what he does not grant to harshness. That is to say, peaceful activism is distinctly superior to violent activism. There is nothing mysterious about the point made in this hadith. It is a simple and a well-known fact of life that in a situation of war and violence, feelings of hatred and enmity flare up between the two sides and In the process, the existing resources are destroyed. People from both sides get killed and the entire society turns into a jungle of negative feelings. It is quite obvious that in such an atmosphere, no constructive and consolidated work can be done. There is nothing that can be achieved in war and violence save death and destruction. On the contrary, An atmosphere of peace enables normal relations to be established between people. It makes it possible for feelings of love and friendship to prevail. In a favorable atmosphere, constructive activities flourish and the existing resources can be used for development or other creative activities. A positive bent of mind will prevail which will help develop academic and intellectual advancement. The greatest ill effect of war is that it limits human endeavor, whereas the greatest benefit of peace is that to the ultimate extent it opens up opportunities for improvement. War invariably results in further loss, while peace invariably results in further gain. That is why Islam teaches us to avoid war and confrontation at all costs. And commands us to establish peace to the greatest possible degree. Clarification of a Fallacy. There are certain verses in the Quran which convey injunctions similar to the following Kill them wherever you find them. Surah 2, Ayat 191. Referring to such verses, There are some who attempt to give the impression that Islam is a religion of war and violence. This is totally untrue. Such verses relate in a restricted sense to those who have unilaterally attacked the Muslims. The above verse does not convey the general command of Islam. The truth of the matter is that the Quran was not revealed in the complete form in which it exists today. It was revealed from time to time, according to the circumstances, over a time span of 23 years. If this is divided into years of war and peace, the period of peace amounts to 20 years, while that of war amounts only to 3 years. The revelations during those 20 peaceful years were the peaceful teachings of Islam as are conveyed in the verses regarding the realization of God, worship, morality, justice, etc. This division of commands into different categories is a natural one and is found in all religious books. For instance, the Gita, the holy book of the Hindus, pertains to wisdom and moral values. Yet, along with this exhortation of Krishna to Arjun, encouraging him to fight, Chapter 3, Verse 30, This does not mean that believers in the Gita should wage wars all the time. Gandhiji, after all, derived this philosophy of non-violence from the same Gita. The exhortation to wage war in the Gita applies only to exceptional cases where circumstances leave no choice. But for general day-to-day existence, it gives the same peaceful commands as derived from it by Mahatma Gandhi. Similarly jesus christ said do not think that i came to bring peace on earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword matthew chapter 10 it would not be right to conclude that the religion preached by christ was one of war and violence for such utterances relate purely to particular occasions so far as general life is concerned Christ taught peaceful values, such as the building up of a good character, loving each other, helping the poor and needy, etc. The same is true of the Quran. When the Prophet of Islam immigrated from Mecca to Medina, the idolatrous tribes were aggressive towards him, but the Prophet always averted their attacks by the exercise of patience and the strategy of avoidance. However, on certain occasions, no other options existed, save that of retaliation. Therefore, he had to battle on certain occasions. It was these circumstances which occasioned those revelations relating to war. These commands, being specific to certain circumstances, had no general application. They were not meant to be valid for all time to come. That is why the permanent status of the Prophet has been termed a mercy for all mankind. Surah 21 Ayat 107 Non-Violence and Islam We have sent you as a mercy for all nations. The Quran Surah 21 Ayat 107 Non-violence should never be confused with inaction or passivity. Nonviolence is action in the full sense of the word, rather, it is more forceful in action than that of violence. It is a fact that nonviolent activism is more powerful and effective than violent activism. Nonviolent activism is not limited in its sphere, it is a course of action which may be followed in all matters. Whenever individuals, groups, or communities are faced with a problem, one way to solve it is by resorting to violence. The better way is to attempt to solve the problem by peaceful means, avoiding violence and confrontation. Peaceful means may take various forms. In fact, it is the nature of the problem which will determine which of these peaceful methods is applicable to the given situation. Islam is a religion which teaches non-violence. According to the Quran, God does not love facade, violence. What is meant here by facade is clearly expressed in verse 205 of the second chapter. Basically, facade is that action which results in disruption of the social system causing huge losses in terms of lives and property. Conversely, we can say with certainty that God loves nonviolence. He abhors violent activity in human society, as a result of which people have to pay the price with their possessions and even their lives. This is supported by other statements in the Quran. For instance, we are told in the Quran that peace is one of God's names. Surah 59 Ayat 23 those who seek to please god are assured by verse 5 of the 16th surah that they will be guided by him to the paths of peace paradise which is the final destination of the society of god's choice is referred to in the quran as the home of peace surah 89 ayat 30 etc the entire spirit of the quran is in consonance with this concept for instance the Qur'an attaches great importance to patience. In fact, patience is set above all other Islamic virtues with the exceptional promise of reward beyond measure. Surah 39, Ayah 10 Patience implies a peaceful response or reaction, whereas impatience implies a violent response. The word sabr. Exactly expresses the notion of nonviolence as it is understood in modern times. That patient action is nonviolent action has been clearly expressed in the Quran. According to one tradition, the Prophet Muhammad may peace be upon him observed, "God grants to Rifk gentleness, what He does not grant to Umph violence." Abu Dawood Sunan, chapter four, verse. 255. The word rifq has been used in this hadith as an antithesis to unth. These terms convey exactly what is meant by violence and non-violence in present times. This hadith clearly indicates the superiority of the non-violent method. God's granting to non-violence what he does not grant to violence in no simple matter. It has very wide and deep implications. Embodying as it does an eternal law of nature by this very law of nature, all bad things are associated with violence, while all good things are associated with nonviolence. Violent activities breed hatred in society, while nonviolent activities elicit love. Violence is the way of destruction, while nonviolence is the way of construction. In an atmosphere of violence, It is enmity which flourishes, while in the atmosphere of nonviolence it is friendship which flourishes. The method of violence gives way to negative values, while the method of nonviolence is marked by positive values. The method of violence embroils people in problems, while the method of nonviolence leads people to the exploiting of opportunities. In short, violence is death, nonviolence is life. Both the Quran and the Hadith have attached great importance to jihad. What is jihad? Jihad means struggle, to struggle one's utmost. It must be appreciated at the outset that this word is used for non violent struggle as opposed to violent struggle. One clear proof of this is the verse of the Quran, Surah 25, Ayat 52, which says, Perform jihad with this, i.e., the words of the Quran, most strenuously. The Quran is a book of ideology. In such a case, performing jihad with the Quran would mean an ideological struggle to conquer people's hearts and minds through Islam's superior philosophy. In the light of this verse of the Quran, jihad, in actual fact, is another name for peaceful activism or nonviolent activism. Where kital is violent activism, jihad is non violent activism. Peaceful beginning. When the Quran began to be revealed, the first verse of Revelation conveyed the injunction Read Ikra, Surah 96, Ayat 1. By pursuing this verse, we learn about the initiation of Islamic action it begins from the point where there is hope of continuing the movement along peaceful lines and not from that point where there are chances of it being marred by violence what are the advantages of nonviolent activism over violent activism they are briefly stated as under number 1 according to the quran there are two faculties in every human being which are mutually antipathetic one is the ego and the other is the conscience called respectfully nafs amara and nafs lawama the quran sura 12 ayat 53 and sura 75 ayat 26 what the violent method invariably does is to awaken the ego which necessarily results in a breakdown of social equilibrium on the other hand, nonviolent activism awakens the conscience. From this results an awakening in people of introspection and self appraisal. And according to the Quran, the miraculous outcome of this is that he who is your enemy will become your dearest friend. Sora 41, Ayat 34. Number two, a great advantage of the nonviolent method is that. By following it, no part of one's time is wasted. The opportunities available in any given situation may then be exploited to the fullest extent as happened after the No War Pact of Hudabiyah. This peace treaty enabled the energies of the believers to be utilized in peaceful, constructive activities instead of being dissipated in a futile armed encounter. One great harm done by violent activism is the breaking of social traditions in the launching of militant movements. Conversely, the great benefit that accrues from nonviolent activism is that it can be initiated and prolonged with no damage to tradition. Generally speaking, attempts to improve or replace existing systems by violent activism are counterproductive. One coup d'etat is often a signal for series of coupes and counter coupes. The truly desirable revolution is that which permits gradual and beneficial changes, and this can be achieved only on the basis of nonviolence. Success through the Nonviolent Method all the great successes of the first phase of Islam as well as the succeeding periods were achieved by nonviolent methods. Listed below are some examples of these successes. Number 1. Of the 23-year period of prophethood, the initial 13 years were spent by the prophet in Mecca. The prophet fully adopted the way of pacifism or nonviolence during this time. There were many such issues in Mecca at the time which could have been the subject of clash and confrontation, but, sedulously avoiding all such issues, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, strictly limited his fear to peaceful propagation of the word of God. This resulted in Dawah work being performed in full force throughout this period. One of the great gains during these 13 years of Dawah work was the entry into the Islamic fold of men of the highest moral caliber who were responsible for forming the history of Islam, for instance, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, etc. Number 2. In Mecca, when the Quraysh leaders were all set to wage war against the Prophet, even then Instead of opting for the way of reaction and retaliation, what the Prophet did was to secretly migrate to Medina. Migration, by its very nature, was a clear example of nonviolent activism. This peaceful strategy enabled the Prophet and his followers, about 200 in number, to form a powerful center of Islam in Medina. Had they adopted the path of confrontation instead of peaceful migration, the history of Islam might have been buried right there in Mecca shortly after its inception. Number 3. After the immigration, his antagonists took the unilateral decision to wage war against him. Consequently, such bloody encounters as those of Badr and Ahud took place. Then the Prophet made a 10-year peace treaty known in history as Sul al-Hudabiyah by accepting all the conditions of his opponents. This has been called a clear victory in the Quran. It was this peace treaty paving the way for peaceful, constructive activities which ultimately made possible the conquest of Mecca and the whole of Arabia. Number 4. At the end of the pious Caliphate, a bloody encounter had taken place between the Banu Hashim and the Banu Umayya. This stopped the advance of Islam for a period of ten years. What set this process in motion once again was the voluntary withdrawal of Hassan ibn Ali from the battlefield. This was undeniably a practical form of nonviolent activism. This peaceful move on the part of Hassan ibn Ali reopened to Islam the locked doors of progress. Number five During the last days of the Abbasid Caliphate, Mongol tribes attacked the Muslim world and, right from Samarkand to Aleppo, destroyed the entire Muslim world. The history of Islam had apparently come to a standstill. At that moment, the spirit of Dawah work was born within the Muslims. As a result, the majority of the Mongols converted to Islam. And that miracle took place which has been described by an orientalist in these words. The religion of Muslims has conquered where their arms had failed. Number 6. Islamic historically took a crucial turn when In the years succeeding the pious Caliphate, rot had set in, in the system of the government, and the Caliphate had turned into monarchy. At that juncture, many factors emerged which would have resulted in serious friction between the ruler and the ruled. But following the guidance of the Prophet, the Muslims totally avoided political confrontation. This history, beginning with the Umayyad Caliphate, continued for several centuries. This was possible because of the tabiun, or companions of the prophet's companions, and their succeeding generations consisting of traditionalists, jurists, ulema, Sufis, and other great religious scholars all scrupulously avoided any clash or confrontation with the rulers. It was during this period that on one hand, peaceful dawah work was started in various countries while on the other, the disciplines of hadith, fiqh, and other Islamic sciences came into existence on a large scale after a long period of great struggle. All the precious books which adorn our libraries, all the classical literature of Islam, are the result of these peaceful activities. For instance, the hadith as a source of sharia is second only to the Quran and Islam. These traditions now exist in the form of printed books. These books are so precious that without them, it would not have been possible to develop Islam into a complete system as it exists today. Under the rule of the Umayyads and the Abbasids, when the political system had begun to deteriorate, where were these tens of thousands of traditions? All of them existed in the memory of the religious scholars whose names are mentioned in the books as chains in the link of authorities who have handed this legacy down to us. Had they adopted the principle of violent activism and clashed with the oppressive rulers, they would have all been slaughtered by them, and the entire legacy of traditions, instead of finding a place on the pages of books, would have been buried along with them in the graveyards. It is by the miracle of having adopted non-violent instead of violence that the precious sources of traditions have survived in book form and, till today, adorn our libraries. Political Revolt Unlawful Despite the blatant perversion in the Muslim rulers after the pious caliphate, the Muslim ulama, did not lead in insurrection against these corrupt individuals. For about a period of 1,000 years, they remained detached in this matter and continued to engage all efforts in non-political fields. This was not a matter of accident, but in obedience to the express injunctions of the Sharia. As we know, in the books of Hadith, Detailed traditions have been set down in chapters titled Kitab al-Fitan. The Prophet Muhammad observed in plain words that in later times perversions would set in in the rulers. They would become tyrannical and unjust, but that Muslims should not wield their swords against them. They should rather move to the mountains with their goats and camels by goats and camels are meant the opportunities and non-political fields which exist, even when the political institutions are corrupted. This injunction given by the Prophet meant that the Muslims should avail of such opportunities by avoiding clash and confrontation in the political field. In short, by ignoring the political problem, they should avail of the non-political opportunities. These injunctions of the Prophet Muhammad were so clear that the Muslim ulama of later times formed a consensus to make insurrection against the rulers unlawful. Imam An nawawi commenting upon some traditions as set forth by Sahih Muslim observes, "...you should not come into conflict with the rulers in matters of their power." Even if you find them going against express Islamic injunctions, you should attempt to make the truth clear to them solely through words of wisdom and advice. So far as revolt and war against them in order to unseat them is concerned, that is totally unlawful according to the consensus of the ulama, even when the rulers are zalim and fasik, tyrants and corrupt. Sahih Muslim, Shah An-Nawawi, Chapter 12, Verse 229 This command of the Prophet, as clearly expressed above, was based on extremely important considerations. In actual fact, in the early phase of Islam, as well as in the later phase, dawah and reform works had to be performed without which the history of Islam would not have been complete. If the ulama of the Muslim community had tried to pose a threat to the political institutions, certainly all this constructive work would have been left undone. That is why the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, expressly prohibited any clash with political institutions. This avoidance of strife guaranteed that non-political constructive work would continue to be performed without any break. In every society, there are always two systems side-by-side, one political and the other non-political. The latter is established through various non-political institutions. According to the scheme of Islam, non-political institutions established at the social level have always to remain stable. In this way, there is a continuing endeavor even when the political institutions have become corrupt or keep changing, to keep Islam firmly established at the level of the non political system. The command of war in Islam. It is a fact that certain verses in the Quran convey the command to do battle, Qital, Surah 22, Ayat 39. What the special circumstances are, which justify the issuance of and compliance with this command, we learn from our study of the Quran. Number one, the first point to be noted is that aggression or launching of an offensive by believers is not totally forbidden. It is permissible, but with certain provisos. We are clearly commanded in the Quran, fight for the sake of God. Those that fight against you, but do not be aggressive. Surah 2, Ayat 190. Number 2, Only defensive war is permitted in Islam. Such a war is one in which, as the Quran says, they were the first to attack you. Surah 9, Ayat 13, i.e., Aggression is committed by some other party so that the believers have to fight in self-defense. Initiating hostilities is not permitted for Muslims. Furthermore, even in the case of the offensive being launched by an opposing group, the believers are not supposed to retaliate immediately. Rather, in the beginning, all efforts are to be made to avert war, And only when avoidance has become impossible is battle to be resorted to in self-defense. Number three, according to the Quran, there was one form of war which was time-bound strictly in relation to its purpose. This was to be put to an end to fitna. Fight against them until fitna is no more. Surah two, Ayat 193. In this verse, fitness signifies that course of system which had reached the extremes of religious persecution. In ancient times, this course of political system prevailed all over the world. This absolutism had closed all the doors of progress, both spiritual and material. At that time, God commanded the believers to break this coercive system in order to usher in freedom so that all doors of spiritual and material progress might be open to man. Bringing monarchy to an end and establishing the caliphate in its place in the first phase of Islam was the beginning of this process. The system was first established in Arabia. At that time, there were two major empires the Byzantine, and the Sassanid, to both of which the reform movement in Arabia posed a challenge. As a result, these empires wanted to crush it. The prophets' companions therefore faced stiff resistance, but by God's succor they were successful in their mission and the coercive system termed absolute imperialism by the French historian Henry Pyrene was uprooted. It took this revolutionary event to end a coercive system which had been established for centuries and replace it with a system based on freedom. This goal could not have been achieved in its first stage. By divine succor, Islam succeeded in breaking the historical continuity of this ancient coercive system in the 7th century. Subsequently. This change affected all of human history, and as a continual process, ebbed and flowed until it reached its culmination in the 20th century. Then came the decentralization which took place at the beginning of the 20th century, political power being limited solely to the administration, and the interference of political institutions became very limited social departments became generally independent of it. This great change in the pattern of human life was exactly in accordance with Islam. It thus became possible for believers, whether they possess political power or not, to attain constructive goals without any hindrance. It was this system which affected the transition from the age of kingship to the age of institutions. Thus, it has become possible for the believers to set up various establishments of their own on a large scale and indirectly bring political institutions under their influence, and in so doing, they can penetrate society, which was earlier possible only through political power. For instance, in training the new generation, creating an intellectual atmosphere by making available the print and electronic media, the propagation of ideas through books, continuing the process of ijtihad through research foundations, safeguarding religion by opening more mosques and schools, the acquisition of finance through industrial institutions, universal realization of one's objectives through the means of communication, realization of religious and cultural affairs through different channels, etc. In modern time, those nations who have understood this have achieved success even without having political power. Some have become established and excelled in the field of education, while others have set up empires in the industry, communications, or finance. The last in the list of these non-governmental empires is that of computers. This has given man the opportunity to keep his finger on the pulse of human activity not only at a national level, but also at the international level. When the Quran says, and religion is holy for Allah, it portrays the most important aspect of the change of times. This change has reduced the status of political power to the point where it is no longer necessary for believers to wage war for its acquisition, as it is no longer needed to secure the desired benefits. Non-political institutions serve this purpose equally well. This mission was undertaken and brought to a successful conclusion at the internal level within Arabia during the life of the Prophet. Later. During the pious caliphate, the Sassanid and Byzantine empires were dismantled with special divine succor. Consequently, intellectual oppression at the international level was replaced by intellectual freedom. In this connection, those traditions are worth noting which are enshrined in Sahih al-Bukhari. When, after the fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abi Talib, political conflict ensued between Abdullah ibn Zubayr and the Umayyads. Abdullah ibn Umar, one of the senior-most companions of the Prophet, held himself aloof from the battle. People approached him and, quoting the verse of kital al-Fitna, asked him why he was not joining in the battle. Abdullah ibn Umar replied that Fitna as mentioned in the Quran, did not refer to political infighting, but rather to the religious coercive system that had already been put an end to by them. Fathul Bukhari, chapter 8, verse 60. From this, we learn that the war against fitna was a war of limited duration, temporary in nature, meant to be engaged in only until its specific purpose had been served invoking the Qur'anic exhortation to do battle against fitna in order to validate acts of war which had quite other aims and highly improper. This verse could be cited only if the same state of affairs as existed at the time of its revelation were to prevail once again. The biographers of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, have put the number of Ghazwa battle at more than 80. This gives the impression that the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, in his 23-year prophetic career waged war about four battles in a year. But this impression is entirely baseless. The truth is that the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, and his entire prophetic life engaged in war only on three occasions. All the other incidents described as Ghazwat, were in actual fact examples of avoidance of war and not instances of involvement in battle. For instance, in the book of Sirah, the incident of Al-Azab is called a Ghazwa, battle. Whereas the truth is that on this occasion, the armed tribes of Arabia, 12,000 in number, reached the borders of Medina with all intentions of waging war, but the Prophet and his companions dug a deep trench between them, thus successfully preventing a battle from taking place. The same is the case with all other incidents called gazwa. The opponents of the Prophet repeatedly tried to embroil him in war, but on all such occasions, he managed to resort to some such strategy as averted the war. Thus, diffusing the situation, there were only three instances of Muslims really entering the field of battle, Badr, Uhud, and Hunain. But on all these occasions, war had become inevitable, so that the Prophet was compelled to encounter the aggressors in self-defense. Furthermore, these battles lasted only for a half a day, each beginning at noon and ending with the setting of the sun. Thus, it would be proper to say that the Prophet in his entire lifespan had actively engaged in war for a total of a day and a half. That is to say, the Prophet had observed the principle of non-violence throughout his twenty-three prophetic career, except for one and a half days. The Islamic method being based on Totally on the principle of nonviolence, makes it unlawful for believers to initiate hostilities. Except in cases where self defense has become inevitable, the Quran in no circumstance gives permission for violence. The modern age and nonviolence. The greatest problem facing Islam today is. As I see it, that Muslims have almost totally forgotten the Sunnah, the Prophet's way of nonviolence. In later times, when the Ottoman and Mughal empires disintegrated and problems like that of Palestine have had to be confronted by the faithful, Muslims all over the world have fallen a prey to negative reaction on a colossal scale. They have failed to remember that the policy of Islam is not that of violence but of non violence. It is the result of this deviation that despite almost a hundred years of bloody wars, Muslims have achieved no positive gain. Rather, whatever they already had has been lost by them. According to Imam Malik, later generations of this Ummah Muslim community will be able to settle matters at issue in the same way that earlier generations had done, i.e. by non-violent methods. Similarly, Muslims of modern times must likewise resort only to non-violent methods. Just as no gain could accrue from violent methods earlier, no gain can accrue from violent methods today. The state of affairs of Muslims in modern times resembles that which prevailed at the time of Hudaybiyah. Today, once again, only on a far larger scale, this Hamiyat al-Jahiliyyah, prejudices prevailing in pre-Islamic Arabia, is being displayed by the other party. In the first phase of Islam, its solution lay in Muslims sedulously avoiding an equivalent display of prejudice, and in holding firmly to Kalima ataqwa, the word of piety, they became entitled to the succor of God and were granted a clear victory. At the time of the Hurubia peace treaty, the Quraysh, who had secured the leadership of Arabia, were bent on raging war. The Kaaba was in their possession. They had expelled the Prophet and his companions from their hometown. They had taken possession of Muslims' homes and other properties and spared no effort in disseminating negative propaganda against Islam. Given this state of affairs, there were only two options before the believers. one was to attempt to put an end to tyranny and launch an outright war on the other party in the name of securing their rights. The result of such a move would certainly have been further loss in terms of lives and property. The second option was to remain patient in the face of immediate loss, be it political or material, and, in spite of the losses, avail of whatever opportunities were already available. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, and his companions chose the second course. The result was that the entire history of Arabia was revolutionized in just a few years' time. The same state of affairs is widespread in modern times. Although today, Muslims have suffered great losses, political and material, at the hands of other nations there still exists a great number of opportunities on a far larger scale. If availed of wisely, we can rewrite the history of Islam in magnificent terms. The Manifestation of Religion The modern age is regarded by Muslims as being fraught with problems for Islam. But this is quite contrary to the actual situation. The modern age is in fact the age of Islam, just as the rainy season is the part of the year most beneficial to farmers. But Muslims, lacking in understanding and awareness, have failed to understand this, hence their failure to convert this potential into reality. What is called Ishar Adin in the Quran does not refer to something which is temporary in nature. It, in fact refers to an eternal ideological ascendancy of Islam. It means that in the world of ideology, such a revolution would be brought about as would establish the ideology supremacy of Islam forever. God has already brought it into existence potentially. Believers have only to tap and convert this potential into reality. The aim of the revolution brought about by the Prophet and his companions in the 7th century is stated to be Ishar ad in the Quran. They desire to extinguish the light of Allah with their mouths, but Allah seeks only to perfect His light, however much the disbelievers may abhor it. Surah 9, Ayats 32-33. Ishar in Arabic means dominance, ascendancy, supremacy. Here, Ishar ad-Din signifies intellectual and ideological dominance not political dominance. This means that in intellectual and ideological respects, God's religion assumes ascendancy over all other ideologies and religions for all time. Granting ideological ascendancy to God's religion was no simple matter. It amounted to the writing of history afresh. For although God's religion has always been in superior position ideologically, it has become obscured by false and misguided ideas. The reason being that in ancient times people were heavily under the influence of superstitious thinking. Their arts and learning in general had all become fettered by superstition and idolatry. This had led to a veil being thrown over true religion, which was the only vehicle for God's truth. God desired that through the final prophet an intellectual revolution be brought about which would alter this unfavorable and artificial state of affairs. Human sciences themselves have become supporters of the true religion, so that, by academic standards themselves, the religion of monotheism may be made an established religion for the people. Ishar din in the above verse, required the same divine plan to be carried into effect through a revolution by the Prophet and his companions. The revolution set in motion a new process in human history. Its purpose was to unravel all the veils of superstition which clouded human judgment and to lay bare the scientific proofs hidden in nature so that the truth of monotheism could be brought to light for all humanity. In modern times, this revolution has reached its culmination. There were two main aims of this isha Adin. One, that the system of religious persecution be put to an end, so that a propitious atmosphere could be created for the performance of Dawa of the true religion. In ancient times, this task could be performed only in a very adverse atmosphere. The second purpose was to rally all arguments in support of God's true religion. Both these tasks have been performed on a large scale in present times. A brief mention of these is made here. In ancient times, the monarchical system prevailed all over the world. An individualistic system like monarchy could be established by force alone. That is why a coercive system of governance was established by the monarchs. They inevitably crushed any sign of intellectual or religious freedom found among their subjects. This state of affairs posed a permanent obstacle to the general development of human thought or to the spreading of any religious mission. Ultimately, this coercive political system was destroyed by the revolution brought about by the Prophet and his companions. The abolition of oppressive systems and the freeing of people's minds from superstition ushered in an era of freedom and democracy. The effect of this revolution in human history set in motion a process of intellectual liberalization. Later on, Western nations contributed greatly towards this revolution in human thought. Now, this process has culminated in the unparalleled scientific achievement of the present day. In consequence, it has become possible for the task of Dawa of Truth to be performed in an atmosphere of freedom which was earlier seriously hampered by the oppressive atmosphere. Idolatry is another name for a religion of superstitions. In ancient times, this shirk idolatry dominated the minds of people, having rendered the progress and development of science impossible. The Prophet and his companions made great sacrifices to put an end to this superstitious system. In this way, the age of science had its beginnings. The changes wrought by it influenced the course of history over the centuries. The scientific revolution, which was in actual fact a byproduct of the Islamic revolution, gave us modern communications. The advent of this new age made it possible for the first time in human history for the propagation of Islam to be carried out on a universal scale. According to a hadith, a time was to come when God's words would enter all the homes in the world. Musnad Ahmad. This was indirectly a prediction of the modern age of communications. One outcome of the modern scientific revolution is that we have at our disposal a number of new arguments in support of Islamic beliefs. Prior to this revolution, the Da'is of Islam could resort only to traditional arguments in support of the truth of Islam but today it has become possible to measure up Islamic realities by the highest standards of human knowledge and to establish their authenticity by purely logical arguments. In ancient times, religion could be studied only as something sacred and as a matter of dogma. That is why established and unestablished religions had not academically been distinguished from one another. In modern times, Owing to the influence of the scientific revolution, the study of religions can be done as objectively and as critically as any other matter which comes under scientific scrutiny. Such critical study has proved purely academically that by historical standards there is only one reliable religion, and that is Islam. All other religions are lacking in this historical credibility. After this intellectual revolution, it has become possible to establish the truth of Islam vis-a-vis other religions purely on the basis of human knowledge. That Islam is the only authentic version of divine religion may be fully supported by arguments. These modern developments in our times have taken Islam to the point of unopposed victory. Now. The need of the hour is for Muslims to put an end unilaterally to all violent activities against Madhu nations, so that a normal relationship may be allowed to grow between Dai and Madhu. Only then can the message of Islam be conveyed in a propitious atmosphere. Now, in the wake of the scientific revolution, it has become possible to begin a serious and beneficial dialogue between Islam and non-Islam, the result of which will necessarily be in favor of Islam. Islam in the present age. Now, the question arises as to whether an Islam which teaches non-violence can be of relevance in the present age and assume a superior position once again in new situations. The answer is entirely in the affirmative. The truth is that Islam's being a peaceful religion shows that it is an eternal religion. Had it been a religion of violence, it would not have been eternal. For in modern times, the way of violence has been totally rejected by contemporary thinking. Now. Only that system is worthy of consideration and acceptance, the teachings of which are based on peace and nonviolence. Modern thinking, for example, has rejected communism. One of the major reasons was that communism had to be sustained by violence. And under no circumstances is violence acceptable to the modern mind. Nazism and fascism, too, have been rejected on similar grounds modern man therefore disapproves of both religious and non-religious extremism because they lead man ultimately to violence but islam is a religion of nature it has held violence as inadmissible from the outset islam has been an upholder of peace not violence from day one in the past islam played a great role in the department of humanity as a result of which, human history entered a new age of progress and development. The time has come today for Islam to play a great constructive role, leading human history once again into a new age of progress. What is called scientific or technical progress is the result of the discovery of some of the great secrets of nature. But if nature and its mysteries have always existed in our world, why has there been such a long delay in the discovery? Why could not the scientific advancement of the last few hundred years have been made thousands of years ago? The reason was that in ancient times, religion and science, divine knowledge and human knowledge, being so closely linked to one another, scientific inquiry was anathema to men of religion. Religious persecution had then become an inseparable obstacle to the progress of science. What Islam did was separate religion, which had become, in essence, a set of irrational beliefs, from scientific research and investigation. For instance, eclipses of the sun and moon had been linked with human destiny. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, declared that eclipses had nothing to do with the lot of human beings. These were astronomical events, not events pertaining to the fate of mankind. Fathul Bari six, eleven. In this connection, an incident of the pollination of dates is recorded in the books of Hadith How the Prophet of Islam observed that in worldly matters, such as the pollination of date palms, you should act according to your experience as you know these matters better. Shahi Muslim B. Shah An Nawawi, chapter 15, verse 117. This meant the linking religion and science from one another. In this way, scientific research acquired an atmosphere of freedom for its functioning. For the first time in human history, Science, human knowledge, could be developed freely without the intervention of religion. And advancing gradually, it culminated in the attainments of the modern age. But today, man is again facing an even greater problem. That is, despite the extraordinary progress made in the field of science and technology, human beings are confronted with various kinds of problems without there being any solution in sight. All these problems have resulted from not knowing the limit of freedom. Modern man aspired to freedom as the highest good, but once having reached this goal, he was unable to set reasonable limits to freedom. In consequence, unrestrained freedom descended into anarchy and lawlessness. This is the actual cause of many of the problems which are emerging in modern times in Western society. Now. Man requires an ideology which delimits his freedom, drawing the line between desirable and undesirable freedom. And it is only Islam which can provide him with such ideology. Now is the time for this ideology to be presented to man, who is ready and waiting to accept it. After the fall of communism, 1991, the world is faced with an ideological vacuum. This vacuum can be filled by Islam alone. In the present world, the developed countries have become economic or military superpowers, but the place is vacant for ideological superpower, and that, potentially, belongs to Islam. There is only one obstacle in converting a great potential into a reality in favor of Islam, and that is the repeated recourse to violence by Muslim movements in modern times. Such action has presented Islam before the world in the guise of a violent religion. For this reason, the man of today shies away from Islam. He fails to study Islam objectively. If this barrier could be removed and Islam once again brought before the world as a nonviolent religion or as a peaceful social system, then once again humanity would accept it, recognizing it to be the voice of its own nature. Modern man is in need of a new religion or a new system based on peace. It should be free from superstitious beliefs and should provide the answers to deep psychological questions. Its principles should not clash with scientific realities. Today, no religion but Islam can lay such positive claims to acceptance, for it is Islam and Islam alone which fulfills all these conditions. Individually, there are many men and women today who, after studied Islam, have acknowledged these unique qualities in Islam. Some have acknowledged them in theory, while others have gone ahead and accepted Islam in practice. The True Jihad Through Dawah Activism Islamic activism, in respect of its method, is based on nonviolence, and, in respect of its target, is based on Dawah. Dawah, in fact, is another name for a peaceful struggle for the propagation of Islam. It would be true to say that Islamic activism is, in fact, Dawah activism. The task of Dawah is no simple one. It enjoys the status of a key factor. If this task is fully performed, all other objectives would be automatically achieved. In support of this, here are certain quotations from the Quran. Number 1. Through Dawah, the believers receive God's protection against the mischief of the opponents. Five, ayat 67. Number 2. Through Dawah, even the direst enemies turns into one's dearest friend surah 41 ayat 34 number three dawah proves islam's ideological superiority and without doubt nothing is greater than this surah 10 ayat 32 number four through dawah a positive mentality is inculcated within the ummah this is called honest counsel in the quran surah 7 at 68. Number 5. The mission of Dawa is performed by human beings, but the conditions conducive to its success are provided by God, just as the farming is to be done by the farmer while the rains come from God. In modern times, favorable conditions have been fully provided to man. Now, the believer's duty is to refrain from expending their energies in feudal activities. They must exert their entire energy in dawah work. All the best results will ensue from this act. Peace and justice One great problem for Muslims is that peace does not necessarily guarantee them justice. This has caused Muslims to become violent and to neglect opportunities for dawah. In modern times, Muslims want a peace which brings them justice. But according to the law of nature, this kind of peace can never be achieved. That is why Muslims the world over are in a state of physical and mental unrest. Distressed in their minds, they have become violent in their thinking and in their actions. The truth is that peace does not automatically produce justice. Peace in actual fact simply opens up opportunities for the achievement of justice. At the time of the Hudaybiyah, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, had not found justice. He had achieved peace, but only by delinking it from justice. The Prophet had made this peace, not to extract justice, but to create opportunities for advancement. And, with the establishment of peace, great opportunities for dawah action did open up, which the Prophet exploited in full measure. Therefore, in just a few years' time, the Prophet not only ensured justice, but set Islam upon a much more solid footing. The Muslims of the present day have to understand the secret of nature. Only then will it be possible for them to first find peace, then ultimately their desired goal of justice. In October 1997, I met a 36-year-old European Leon Zippo Hayes, who was born in the city of Christ Church in New Zealand. After having studied Islam, he has changed his religion. His Islamic name is Khalilur Rahman. Passing through Muslim countries, he is going to perform Hajj by land. During the conversation, he said that in modern times, Muslims are engaged in bloody war at many places at some places with others and at other places among themselves. This has led him, like many others, to conclude that perhaps Islam was a religion of violence. Later, he studied the Quran with the help of translations, and when he reached the verse in the Quran, whoever killed a human being should be looked upon as though he had killed all mankind He said that he was so moved that he could not believe that it was there in the Quran. This incident is broadly indicative of thinking of non-Muslims on Islam. On seeing the actions of Muslims, people today find it hard to believe that Islam may be a religion of peace. But if Muslims stop engaging in violent activities and give the people the opportunity to appreciate Islam in its original form, then certainly a great number of people would realize, as they never had before, that Islam was a peaceful religion and they would rush to it, saying that it was exactly the religion which their souls had been seeking all along. Muslims Displaced It is an incontrovertible fact that Muslims have not been able to join the mainstream in modern times. At all places and in every department, they are leading their lives as if driven into a corner. This is undoubtedly an extremely critical problem, for it has relegated Muslims to second-class positions all over the world. To me, the greatest reason for this is the violent attitude of the Muslims. Today's Muslims are easily provoked and become violent at anything which is against their way of thinking. Not all Muslims become involved in acts of violence, yet all might be held culpable. This is because that section of Muslims, in fact, the majority, who are not personally involved, neither disown those members of their community who are engaged in violence, nor even condemn them. In such a case, according to the Islamic Sharia itself, if the involved Muslims are directly responsible. The uninvolved Muslims are also indirectly responsible. It is Muslims' religion and secular leaders who are actually responsible for this violent approach on the part of Muslims today. In modern times, when Muslims have had to undergo the experience of defeat, almost all the religious and secular scholars as well as intellectuals followed one single line, that of awakening the spirit of jihad. In the sense of Katal among Muslims. The entire Muslim world reverberated with such slogans as, Jihad is our way, and Jihad is the only solution to our problems. The entire world has witnessed a great number of large and small movements in violent response to the problems faced by Muslims. If you go to Palestine, you will hear young people singing a song no doubt taught to them by their elders. Let's make war, let's make war, for war is the way to success. In modern times, the violent approach of our intellectuals and leaders of movements is the sole reason for the present violent mentality amongst Muslims all over the world. It is as a result of this mentality that if anyone writes a book against Islam, Muslims are prepared to kill him. If any possession raises anti-Muslim slogans, Muslims start stoning the possession instead of killing the evil of observing silence, which as Umar Farouk advocated, would be the best strategy in such a case. If there is a monetary or territorial controversy with any nation, they immediately take up arms against it rather than adopt a peaceful strategy to solve the problem. This violent mentality of Muslims is responsible for having alienated them from their neighbors everywhere. Their conduct clearly shows that they no longer cherish the ideal of universal brotherhood. Everywhere they are looked upon with aversion and dread. The resulting dissociation has left Muslims a backward group in modern times. Even in advanced countries like America, they remain backward as a community in comparison with other immigrant groups. The only way to alleviate the tragic plight of Muslims is to bring them back to nonviolent Islam by helping them to understand that their violent version of Islam is not the true one. As soon as Muslims take to the path of nonviolent Islam, they will be able to become equal partners with other communities. They will have joined the universal mainstream and will consequently be able to participate in all activities, in all institutions. People, instead of dreading them, will welcome them in every field. They will become a part of the Universal Brotherhood. Their issues will be looked upon with justice. Their equal partnership will be assured in all institutions, ranging from the social to the educational. Peaceful interaction will give Muslims the kind of intellectual stimulation and variety of experience which they must have if they are to thread the path of progress. Interaction will also facilitate the task of Dawah on a large scale. The natural result of this vast interaction of Muslims and non-Muslims will be that everywhere dialogue on Islam will be started formally as well as informally. In modern times, because of the extremist and violent attitude of Muslims, serious dialogue between Islam and non-Islam has almost come to an end. Now, when peaceful interaction between Muslims and non-Muslims take place in a normal atmosphere, serious dialogue will ensue on its own. The beginning of serious dialogue between Islam and non-Islam is, without doubt, a very great success from the point of view of Dawah. The Quran describes Sul al-Hudabiyyah in the early period of Islam as a clear victory. It was a clear victory in the sense that it established peace between the believers of monotheism and believers in polytheism thus making it possible for a serious dialogue to be held between the two on religious matters. In modern times, if Muslims abandon the path of violence and fully adopt the path of non-violence, this will be for Muslims like reviving the Sunnah of Hurubiyah, and they will start receiving great benefits similar to those which Islam and Muslims had gained after the event of Hurubiyah in the first phase. Tolerance Its significance today Requite evil with good the Quran. Sora 23 Ayat 96 On January 1, 1995, newspapers flashed the news that the United Nations had proclaimed 1995 as the Year of Tolerance, saying that the ability to be tolerant of the actions, beliefs, and opinions of others is a major factor in promoting world peace. Amidst the resurgence of ethnic conflicts, discrimination against minorities and xenophobia directed against refugees and asylum seekers tolerance is the only way forward said the statement of the united nations educational scientific and cultural organization unesco it is said racism and religious fanaticism in many countries had led to many forms of discrimination and the intimidation of those who held contrary views Violence against and intimidation of authors, journalists, and others who exercise their freedom of expression were also on the increase along with political movements which seek to make particular groups responsible for social ills such as crimes and unemployment. Intolerance is one of the greatest challenges we face on the threshold of the 21st century, said the UNESCO Statement. Intolerance is both an ethnic and political problem. It is a rejection of the differences between individuals and between cultures. When intolerance becomes organized or institutionalized, it destroys democratic principles and poses a threat to world peace. This proclamation of the UN is most apt and timely. The prime need of the world today is indeed tolerance. One of the stark realities of life is that divergence of views does exist between man and man and that it impinges at all levels. Be it at the level of a family or a society, a community or a country, differences are bound to exist everywhere. Now the question is how best unity can be forged or harmony brought about in the face of human tendency to differ. Some people hold that the removal of all differences is the sine qua non for bringing about unity. But this view is untenable, as it is not practicable. You may not like the thorns which essentially accompany roses, but it is not possible for you to pluck out all the thorns and destroy them completely. For if you pluck out one, another will grow in its place. Even if you run a bulldozer over all rose bushes, new plants will grow in their place which will bear roses ineluctably accompanied by thorns. In the present scheme of things, roses can be had only by tolerating the existence of thorns. Similarly, a peaceful society can be created only by creating and fostering the spirit of tolerance towards diversities. In this world, unity is achievable only by learning to unite in spite of differences rather than insisting on unity without differences, for their total eradication is an impossibility. The secret of attaining peace in life is tolerance of disturbance of the peace. There is nothing wrong in diversity of opinions. In fact, this is a positive quality which has many advantages. The beauty of the garden of life is enhanced if the flower of unity is accompanied by the thorn of diversity. An advantage flowing from this attitude is that it builds character. If you are well-mannered towards those whose views are similar to yours, you may be said to exhibit a fairly good character. But if you behave properly with those holding divergent views from you or who criticize you, then you deserve to be credited with having an excellent character. In the same way, a society whose members hold identical views and never have any controversial discussions will soon find itself in the doldrums. The intellectual development of the members of the society will be frozen because personal evolution takes place only where there is interaction of divergent thinking. So where there is no such interaction, how can there be intellectual development? The adoption of a policy of tolerance in the face of controversy and opposition is not a negative step. It is undoubtedly a positive course of action. Divergence of views plays an important role in the development of the human psyche. It is only after running the intellectual gauntlet that a developed personality emerges. If, in a human society, this process ceases to operate, the development of character will come to a standstill. Nobody in this world is perfect. If a man is endowed with some good qualities, he may be lacking in others. This is one of the reasons why differences crop up among people. But, for life as a whole, these differences are actually a great blessing. The good points of one man may compensate for the shortcomings of another, just as one set of talents in one man may complement a different set in another. If people could only learn to tolerate others' differences, their very forbearance will become a great enabling factor in collective human development. The habit of tolerance prevents a man from wasting his time and talent on unnecessary friction. When negatively affected by another's unpalatable behavior, your mental equilibrium is upset. But if you remain emotionally untouched by such behavior, your mind will fully retain its equilibrium and, without wasting a single moment, you will continue to perform your work in the normal way. The policy of tolerance or forbearance enhances your efficacy while intolerant behavior reduces it. Tolerance is not an act of compulsion. It is a positive principle of life, expressing the noble side of a man's character. The existence of tolerant human beings in a society is just like the blooming of flowers in a garden tolerance the price of peace we cannot have anything in this world without paying for it everything has its price and this is particularly true of peace if we want peace we should be ready to pay for it or stand deprived of it what is the price of peace it is simply tolerance we live in a world of differences And these differences cannot be eliminated therefore we have only two options before us adopting the policy of either tolerance or intolerance while the latter leads to violence the former ensures peace where there is tolerance there is peace and when there's intolerance there is war and violence there is only one universal formula of tolerance for peace and this same formula may be successfully applied to one's family life and to social life, as well as at the international level. Peace requires us to foster a culture of tolerance, for intolerance can lead only to war. In the present world, the root cause of most of our problems is traceable to our deviation from the peaceful model of nature, the best model for us to follow. All the dilemmas we are facing today arise because we have not followed nature's lead. The stars and planets are in continual motion in their orbits, but they never collide with one another. This serves to show man how to proceed to his destination in life without coming into conflict with others. The Sun too is an excellent model. It shows us how we should give life to others in a totally undiscriminating way. The tree is also a shining example to man in supplying healthy and beneficial oxygen in exchange for harmful gas that is carbon dioxide. And just look at how the flowers spread fragrance all around. Regardless of whether they are appreciated for it or not. A flowing stream is likewise a model when it irrigates the fields without expecting anything in return. Without the inculcation of these altruistic values among human beings, no meaningful life on earth is possible. In short, positivity prevails throughout nature. Negativity just does not exist in the natural world. This teaches us the lesson that we should give a positive response at all times, even in negative situations. Christ has exhorted us to follow nature's example in these divine words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew verse 6, Chapter 10 Conclusion Peace is the only religion for both man and the universe. In a peaceful environment, all good things are possible, whereas in the absence of peace, we cannot achieve anything of a positive nature, either as individuals or as a community. The same holds true at national and international levels. Scholars have rightly defined peace as the absence of war, however, there are some who hold that peace should necessarily be accompanied by justice. By setting such a condition for the attainment of peace is impractical. For the role of peace is purely to set the stage for us to strive for justice and to work towards other constructive ends. The Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, provides a very clear example in this method of negotiating the Hudabiya peace treaty. By unilaterally accepting the conditions of his opponents, He concluded a historic 10-year no-war pact without apparently receiving justice or his rights. But by means of this peace treaty, the Prophet and his companions were enabled to consolidate themselves so thoroughly that they had no need to wage war to attain justice. Japan's industrial cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were destroyed by atom bombs in 1945. After the Holocaust, Japan abandoned violence and adopted a peaceful course that it termed a reverse course for its national development. Consequently, within 40 years, without any return to militarism, Japan became a great economic superpower. Violence and peace both have wide connotations. Violence is a concomitant factor in everything from personal hatred to all-out war whereas peace is marked by every positive virtue from tolerance to love. Peace is synonymous with normalcy, and normalcy provides all such opportunities as favor the growth of a healthy environment. All kinds of achievements are possible in the ambience of peace. While peace is a boon for human society, violence is a curse. Peace and love go hand in hand while hatred breeds violence. Peace brings people closer while violence tears them asunder. Peace fosters a high level of human outlook, whereas violence breeds a jungle outlook. Peace promotes life while violence is the harbinger of death and destruction. Peace brings the good elements of a society into prominence while violence does quite the reverse. Christ once said, Love your enemy. This means to be on peaceful terms with one's enemy, i.e. winning over your enemy by using the power of peace. This is the divine formula to attain peace. The religious viewpoint on this subject is very aptly conveyed in the Quran. God calls to the home of peace. Sora 10, Ayat 25. This means that according to the creation plan, peace and harmony should prevail in human society. God Himself is peace, peace being an attribute of God. He intended this world to be peaceful, and only a peaceful world will be able to receive His blessings. A peaceful world is like a paradise on earth. It is only in such a world that we can meet and establish contact with God, the creator of man and the universe. No excuse therefore justifies the use of violence in individual or national life. We must maintain peace unilaterally, for nothing that we desire can be achieved without it. Although at opposite poles peace and violence result from human thinking, and if one were to think of the end result, one would never indulge in violence. One should bear in mind that peace is in consonance with humanity, whereas violence means a descent to the animal level. Peaceful minds make for a peaceful world. Man was born in peace. Man must die in peace. A word Gift Book All the teachings of Islam are based on the principle of peace. It is no exaggeration to say that Islam and violence are contradictory to each other. The concept of Islamic violence is so obviously unfounded that prima facie it stands rejected. The fact that violence is not sustainable in the present world is sufficient indication that violence as a principle is quite alien to the scheme of things in Islam. Islam claims to be an eternal religion and, as such, could never afford to uphold any principle which could not stand up to the test of time. Any attempt to bracket violence with Islam amounts, therefore, to casting doubt upon very eternity of the Islamic religion. Islamic terrorism is a contradiction and the truth of the matter is that all the teachings of Islam are based directly or indirectly on the principle of peace. Maulana Wahiduddin Khan is the president of the Islamic Center New Delhi an organization dedicated to presenting Islam in the language and context of modern times the Maulana is the author of Islam Rediscovered, God Arises Islam and Peace, and numerous other best-selling books on Islam. Goodwood Books, presenting Islam in the context of modern times. Visit our website at www.alrisala.org.